0: Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I am your host, senior fashion reporter, Danny Parisi, and I am here with Glossy's fashion reporter in London, Zofia Zviglinska. Zofia, thank you for joining again.
1: Yeah, of course. Lovely to be here.
0: Yeah, great to talk to you. We've got some fun stuff to talk about this week. Um, Biggest news of the week, I think, is uh, Richemont finally offloading its stake in uxnet a To Farfetch, um, and we're going to talk about that and where that leaves Farfetch and luxury e-commerce and all that stuff. Um, We're also going to talk a little bit about the some data about the top five brands in the NFT space, which is all five are fashion brands, and number one is Nike. Um, So we'll talk a little bit about what's going on in that whole space. Sophia, you're more of an expert than I am, so I will be grilling you on that one. But uh, finally, we will talk a little bit about Urban Outfitters. They had earnings this week, which were not. So good, but in a way that is interesting, which is basically they're making more money, but their profits were still down, which is just a common, uh, a common experience, I think, for for a lot of brands right now. But we'll we'll get into that last. Um, but let's start with the UX Netaporte news. So I'll just give a, a bit of background. In 2018, Richemont, which is a big luxury group that owns Cartier and a bunch of other brands, um, bought uh, And since then, it has lost them a lot of money. And I don't think it has been like a super uh, profitable or successful acquisition for them. Um, I think there's been a lot of pressure from their investors for several years now to offload it, especially I think during the pandemic, there was a big surge of e commerce, but uh, Uxnetaporte was not really a recipient of that. Um, and so this week, they announced that they're going to sell off their stake to Farfetch. And this deal is interesting because it has a bunch of, you know, it has a bunch of elements to it. But one that's interesting to me is that as part of the deal, uh, all of Richemont's brands are going to use Farfetch's technology to power their e-commerce, um, which is like a big part of Farfetch's business in addition to just making money off selling product themselves. Um, to me, Sophia, and I'll, I want to hear your thoughts, but to me, this uh, really is like a huge get for Farfetch. They're already like really on top of the whole luxury e-commerce space. They own a bunch of stuff. They own like stadium goods. They've made a bunch of acquisitions and now they're really kind of like getting their technology behind a bunch of luxury brands, e-commerce, you know, platforms. So, what what are your thoughts on, on the acquisition, both for Richman and for Farfetch?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, you know, for Richemont, it's just like a, a pain in their side has now finally gone and away. And, you know, for Farfetch, I think that there's not really any other players right now which are, you know, their size in the space. So it makes sense that, you know, they're going to be kind of taking over the market completely. Like, I'm not sure if there are any other kind of big luxury e-commerce um, platforms, which are not like owned by Farfetch at this point. Um, so I think it, it really points towards a bigger kind of business shift. Um, you know, there's not so many kind of fragmented e-commerce sites. There's not a lot of kind of experimentation, especially right now, maybe, you know, having something which is going to be bleeding money um, is, is not exactly the Wisest move, and maybe Farfetch has the the technology and you know the the operations to turn this one around and make um, you know the the site much more um, similar to the rest of their products.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're 100 percent right. I mean, there are a couple other luxury e commerce players out there that are doing well. There's Matches mm. Fashion and Essence and stuff. Um, and then there are, you know, the only one that I think really rivals Farfetch in terms of like size and revenue would be T Mall's Luxury Pavilion. Oh, yeah. But they have like a partnership, to, you know, where Farfetch like has a presence on the Luxury Pavilion and they kind of are like servicing different markets, you know, mm. so I don't even really think they're. Com- really competing too much. And then the, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then the other one is Amazon Luxury Stores, which launched a couple of years ago. And despite Amazon being, you know, a big successful company, I don't think luxury stores has really been perceived as much of a threat by any of these other players. Um, and I remember writing a story about luxury stores, I think a year after it had come out, in which Jose Neves, the CEO of Farfetch, basically said that he does not consider. It to really be a threat. I mean, it's it's very limited. That doesn't have any you know really exciting splashy luxury brands on it. It's got like you know some nice ones like Oscar De La Renta and stuff. But like in terms of big heavyweight luxury brands, there's just none that are really on Amazon. So I think you're right though to say that Farfetch is like to me seems very clearly dominant in this space and snapping up like its only real rival at the time, which is. Porte to me feels like very significant for for its kind of market share. I have a story on it up on Glossy right now, so you can read more about that for those of you listening. But before we move on, Sophia, any other thoughts you have ar- around Farfetch's dominance?
1: No, I think that that would be everything. Honestly, it's it's just such a a kind of long process. It's you know it's taken a very long time. Um, for this deal to to kind of finalize, you know, obviously, I'm guessing that with the pandemic and you know with the recession, the the sale kind of aspect was something that I think was discussed even last December or something like that. Um, and then now it's something that you know it's come up and is finally kind of done. So I think it's going to be a big shift. Um, but hopefully, you know it will lead to more profitability for Foulfetch.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, All right, let's move on and talk about NFTs. So um, Mm -hmm. there was some data, actually, Zofia, you were the one who told me about this in the first place, but there was some data from Dunn Analytics this week, um, analyzing the the top five brands in terms of NFT sales over the last year or so. And number one is Nike, and the other four are all fashion brands. It's Nike and then Dolce & Gabbana, Tiffany, Gucci, and Adidas, Um, notably all luxury or sneaker brands. Nike is easily in the lead with um nearly 200 million dollars worth of NFTs sold in in the last year. Um this is despite I think in general NFT trading volume being down significantly since since last year. I feel like the craze has died down a little bit and now it's mostly just kind of the core enthusiast sort of crowd. Um Sophia, you've done a lot of writing about this whole world. What's your what's your read on like the state of NFTs from fashion brands and like, obviously it's still big business for the, for the few that are doing super well with it, like Nike or Dolce & Gabbana. Um, But is it, is it like just Nike and and these others that can really make it into something? Or or do you feel like there's still a lot of space for all sorts of brands to try it?
1: I mean, I still think that there's space for other brands to try it. It's just more about, you know, addressing, as you said, those kind of core um, NFT and crypto customers now who have kind of, stayed with the space even during the crypto crash. And, you know, who are kind of benefiting from um, reselling um, items and NFTs on their, you know, on different kind of marketplaces. Like, I think it's crucial to note that the Nike and Artifact um, numbers are almost seven times um, as big as the second contender, Dolce & Gabbana. So it's kind of going to show, you know, that investing in the space early and doing it right and kind of focusing on that iterative aspect, on the fact that there are multiple collaborations, that this is an ongoing thing. Like their acquisition of Artifact last year was, you know, such a big move in the NFT and Web3 space. Since then, you know, Artifact is essentially under, you know, own kind of Um, operations aspect it's not really a part of Nike it works on its own kind of accord but it's still something that is very much bolstered by the fact that Nike's you know a major brand um, who is supporting them in all of their kind of creative enterprises and they've launched so many different projects since then they've got you know digital items now um, including I think a hoodie um, and a jacket. And I think it's something that is going to you know just keep growing um, because of the fact that they have such a dedicated core consumer base. and I think that's something that you know a lot of the times brands might say that they are wanting to engage with that community and do it you know well. Um, but I think it goes to show that doing it properly like artifact, you know, engaging with people on Discord, making sure that people understand the function of the drops, the way that that value is um, changeable, you know, through the different kind of iterations, like that's something that I think they've only done really well. And it's quite surprising when you think about it, because, you know, technically Nike and Adidas would typically be contenders for, you know, the same kind of spots. And Adidas did the um board Ape Yacht Club, um you know, collaboration quite a long time ago now. I think that that's something that, you know, typically would have been a crypto native project, something that would have been quite interesting and exciting for the space but you know their sales just don't compare like it's not the same at all um they're ranked fifth on the scale and it's quite funny to be honest because the um the ranking was created by a Stanford student and crypto researcher who's um (laughs) you know not exactly someone you'd expect as someone putting all of this data together but it Mm -hmm. just goes to show you know how scrappy um and interesting the space is at the moment
0: yeah definitely and it's a a little bit not surprising to me that nike is is so far ahead because Mm -hmm. they're also the by far the dominant brand in like the sneaker world and and we've talked about this on the podcast but i feel like there's such an overlap with like sneaker heads and like nft guy Mm. sort of culture you know i feel like those two people are like so similar there's such an overlap of the venn diagram and i think a lot of like the nft uh market was kind of banking on a lot of the or using a lot of the same strategies that sneakers had developed like this sort of limited um run of like premium you know limited edition products and there'd be one of five thousand, and they drop all at once and they build hype all of this like classic like sneaker hype hype beast like drop model strategy was just ported over to nft so it doesn't surprise me that nike is kind of on top of both of those worlds since i feel like there's such a strong overlap between them
1: yeah definitely um, and you know a lot of that um kind of hype culture is something that might be more difficult to maintain over the course of time obviously you know even with the sneaker space i don't know who it was i think it was bof who did an article um one or two weeks ago about how, you know, the sneaker kind of hype is is getting too much. Like, there's too many products, too many collaborations. Um, Is that something that is going to come to a tipping point? And, you know, could that reflect and also be something that affects the Web3 space? Like, is there going to be a point where, you know, the Nike Artifact um, collaborations or the drops... There will just be too many. And I think that that aspect of timing, making sure that, you know, everything is kind of very well thought out, that there's a, a longer roadmap that kind of stretches the, you know, collectors or the holders of the NFT and their expectations, um, I think would be, you know, a way of maintaining that hype instead of, you know, it gradually kind of getting lower and lower as it has with some of the other projects.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I wonder if the the marketing strategy will shift a little bit too, because I feel like at the height of the NFT craze kind of last year, you know, anyone and everyone was buying an NFT. Like, well, not really, but I, beyond <laughs> like the, the crypto kind of space, it was, you know, people who had no experience at all with it were were buying NFTs. And I feel like maybe now it will be a little bit harder to get those like non- Uh, Crypto knowledgeable or crypto enthusiast people to buy something, so it might might shift a little bit, sort of their strategy of of like targeting more specifically that core customer who already is familiar with the product and is willing to buy and doesn't need any sort of like convincing or anything.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of that, you know, still has to do with the language. Um, the fact that, you know, it's called an NFT, that it's crypto, it can feel a little bit exclusionary. And I think that, you know, especially when it comes to the fashion consumer, like talking about it in more of a gaming angle and digital fashion, digital collectibles, I think that that's something that people understand more. And honestly, it's something that I've been seeing a lot more, The aspect of gaming and digital fashion becoming a bigger part of, um, of, you know, the Web3 space.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's talk finally about Urban Outfitters. So, um I don't mean to single Urban Outfitters out for this because what I'm going to talk about I feel like is something I've seen from a lot of different brands, but they they had earnings this week and what I thought was so interesting is they had like record revenue. They were like making more money than ever and yet their profits um are Falling quite precipitously, their quarterly profits this quarter were um, just under sixty million dollars. Last year in the same quarter was like one hundred twenty-seven million dollars. So like they lost almost seventy million dollars worth of profits, even though their revenue is up two percent. You know, to over a billion dollars. So, and I feel like this is such a common like story. I've been hearing that like it doesn't matter if you're making more money if you're also spending even more money at the same time. You know, the the supply chain is obviously very you know is like messed up in 10 different ways, as everyone knows. Um, But also like the material goods or material costs are higher. Um, I think Urban Outfitters particularly has had some issues with um, employee retention. And so like they're spending more on labor. Um, Just the costs are going up all over the place for a lot of these brands. I don't know, do what do you think of that, Sophia? Like do you think that's gonna continue to hold or like what have you heard from from the brands that you talk to or report on in terms of like where those costs are coming from and and how they're gonna get out of that, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of the costs right now, as you said, are coming from the supply chain, like, it is the the biggest kind of factor right now. I do think that, you know, as all of these individual categories, like their prices go up, uh, there's, as there's kind of more conflict, there's drought, there's, you know, there's a lot of kind of environmental and societal factors that are affecting prices of all of these goods around the world. And, you know, as as it's kind of technically very obvious the supply chain in fashion is global like you're not talking about you know a limited supply chain usually within one country you're talking about multiple elements that have to work together across different countries borderlines you know economic instabilities prices across that sector like it is you know a lesson in macroeconomics by by far um and i think that that's something that a lot of brands are, are kind of starting to realize and maybe not starting but at least like having to catch up on and i think that making sure that you know you have a certain amount of uh, of padding, in a way, financially, to be able to make it through that kind of sector um, is something that, you know, maybe more brands need to be doing right now. You've got a lot of um, news that is pointing towards a worse state of things, that things are not going to be, um, you know, easy um, for fashion brands, that the supply chain aspect is going to probably get worse worse for a little while um, like all of that requires more money and you know more of those costs um, being absorbed by the brands or were still passed on to the consumer
0: yeah for sure um one other thing that's interesting to me about the earnings that i saw is looking at because urban outfitters is obviously it's urban is an umbrella company they've got multiple brands within it looking at which companies are kind of um, maintaining their their profits or or their civility a little better than others. Which brands, I mean? Um, so Anthropology and Free People, which are two brands in the portfolio, um, have had sales going up, while Urban uh, Urban Outfitters has had its sales going down. Um, the, in the earnings report, they talked about how Anthropology and Free People are more expensive and tend to have a more affluent customer, and so that kind of Fits with what we've seen, which is that the higher end brands, whose customers have more money, are just not as impacted by you know inflation and cost rising. Because if you're a richer shopper, it just doesn't it doesn't bother you as much to have to pay more. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is Newly, which is um, Urban's rental company. It's also up in terms of sales, and this is interesting to me. I was looking up Rent the Runway. Uh, their revenue as of like the last quarter was also up compared to like the the year before. Um, not a ton, but, but like noticeable, definitely healthy and like not going down. And I would think that, you know, with pressures on like the economy and discretionary spending, that rental might be something that Goes away, or that people cut back on because it's a little bit of an expensive um, service to use, and it only really makes sense if you're, you know, going out to events and stuff all the time. Um, but it seems like both Newly and Rent the Runway are doing well at the moment. So I I want I'm not sure exactly why. What my theory is for why like it it could be that those companies are not hit as hard by like material costs or something since they're not making the clothes themselves. You know, and I think that's something that the resale companies see, um, doesn't matter if like the raw materials cost more because they're not, they don't buy raw materials and make it into clothes. They just get the clothes. Um, I dunno, did you have any thoughts on newly or, or rental in general, like any theories as to why that, that that might be doing well compared to some of the other brands in the portfolio?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that, you know, rental on on the whole is doing relatively well. It's relatively stable, like it doesn't have those business costs, as you said, um, you know, when it comes to um, the merchandise and the supply chain, most of the time, you know, a lot of the time, it's just a peer to peer service. So maybe also those costs in terms of transportation are removed. Um, You know, it's something that I think a lot of Brands could probably safely rely on. You know, it's, there's an exchange of existing goods, um, there's no new kind of complications that could come in at any point. And in, in many ways, it's a relatively stable, um, you know, kind of process and value chain compared to something where you're actually having to manufacture the goods. And you know, I'd be interested in seeing obviously I know that um urban outfitters don't really have a, a resale component uh, that I know of. Um, but I think that you know it'd be more interesting to see how that is affecting resale as well. Cause obviously that is something that brands can benefit from from their existing inventory um, while still being able to kind of sell their own products instead of renting them out. And I think that that category is going to grow, um, you know, quite a bit. I've talked to a number of brands, including the North Face, um, who have said that, you know, that is going to become a major component of their um, business strategy going forward and that they are hoping to grow it and put more money into it just to make sure that, you know, there is a little bit of risk uh I guess mitigation in some ways.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I also think that resale will kind of play into a lot of companies' sustainability goals, just mm. being able to claim some of that circularity. Um, but I think that's all the time we have for this episode, Sophia, Thank you so much for joining. Um, it's always great to have you on. I'm, you will be a regular guest on the show um, <laughs> in in the future. Although you're off next week, right? You're you're out of town.
1: I am off on holiday for the second oh. time this year. So yeah, looking forward to it.
0: Nice. Well, congratulations. Um, for those of you listening at home, if you have not given the Glossy Podcast a rating and a review, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, please do so. It helps us out a lot. And if you would like, you could give us a, a subscribe. Um, you'll hear the Week in Review episodes every Friday hosted by me, um, joined by Sophia or Jill. Um, and every Wednesday, Jill interviews some cool industry insider in the fashion industry. So give us a subscribe if you haven't, and thanks for listening.